Welcome back to the Varsha Contingency and my conversation with Steve Kotkin, which we left off in our last episode. Now we return to discussion on the collapse of the Soviet Union 31 years ago. Was it destined to happen? Why did it happen? What can we learn from that in our conversations about Russia today? Let's, let's contemporize discussion a bit because I'm curious how you react to this. This basically make it, you know, the history to me is personally fascinating, but of course, a lot of folks are listening to this uh, from looking at it from the standpoint of today's situation, looking at Russia. And I think the reason why this conversation to me is really interesting is I've been looking at how much we misinterpret that history of the 70s and 80s, and it leads to two potentially erroneous conclusions from my point of view. First, from my point of view, I agree with your argument that Russia historically is a relatively weak, great power. It has a lot of latent power. And it has periods of sort of peak performance. But in general, it is a laggard relative to other powers in the international system. It is definitely usually a net importer of modernization rather than exporter or developer of a better, better model of economic political development. And it has a huge amount of resources, but usually a retrograde political system that doesn't do very well at managing them from the standpoint of what do you do with your people and your resources and uh, your stuff? That said... It goes through these cycles of resurgence, stagnation, and decline. We know if we follow Russia long enough, as Russia area studies folks or historians, that we're either going to be talking about Russia as either in a period of resurgence relative to past decline, or in a period of stagnation relative to resurgence, or in a period of decline relative to stagnation, which is where Russia clearly is headed now. And this is usually where everybody writes Russia off, and you know half the field can go become bartenders, but we know Russia will, will probably in, endure and be back. But the reason I'm driving this conversation, because there are two points I kind of want to make. I'm curious how you react to them. The first is that in the 80s, we often misinterpret the sources of success in the Cold War and also why the Soviet Union dissolved. And we assume that this is overdetermined and that the principal inputs were actually external or Western policy and strategy, but they really weren't. And that outcome wasn't overdetermined inevitable. And so the question is, do we see something like that today? in the present situation. And my answer is that even though Russia is clearly in decline, that's very visible and will be for some time, I'm quite skeptical. And the second is the process that were unleashed by the choices of elites, the, the reform process that got out of, out of uh, control, the reaction of other elites to the reform process and what they chose to do to save themselves and the fragmentation of it, had a lot to do with both the choices they made, but also the structure of the Soviet Union. And if we look at Russia, we see, does Russia have the exact same structure? Is Russia like the Soviet Union? And to me, the answer is actually no. Russia is a bit of a different entity. Russia is not like a smaller Soviet Union cosplaying as a Soviet Union. No matter how much leaders like Putin like the, the cult of World War II or these optics, right? It is not a cosplay Soviet Union. It's actually a different creature. And when I look around uh, uh, sort of what makes up the, the, the Russian state, Generally, you see much greater support in the regions for the regime than you see amongst urbanite Russians. Generally, you see a degree of a civic Russian identity layered along with ethno-nationalist identities. And you don't see these calls or demands for new solutions. But more importantly, you don't see the leadership of Russia making the sort of choices that might generate that kind of process, right? I'm just curious how you reacted because to me, the big question is, how do we interpret what happened in the 80s? for our understanding of what's going to happen to Russia moving forward, let's say, for the next decade. Yeah, Mike, I'd actually like to hear your views on all that stuff. Uh, I'll do my best, but honestly, I've, I've heard you sometimes, somewhat on those big issues, and, and you have a lot to say about them. So let, let me just put it this way. If we accept the view 
that it was unintentional, but nonetheless real, communist ideology destabilization of its own system, right? That the thing we thought was dead killed the system unwittingly. If we accept that the structure of the Soviet Union was critical for losing the state, the Soviet state, as well as the party, in other words, we lost the political system and we lost the state alongside of it because of the structure of the system. And then if we accept that the opportunism of latching on to the Union Republics and latching on to the property, privatizing it well before any shock therapy, uh, if we understand that that saved us from Armageddon because they didn't want to go to the wall, they could save themselves without going to the wall and using their 40,000 nuclear weapons and their uh, 40,000 uh, chemical weapons and the biological weapons program and all the stuff that you know well. If we accept that argument, what happens afterwards? Well, what happens afterwards is after 91, the collapse continues because the process of collapse all through the 90s, what we call reform, what we call transition, right, is a devaluation in market terms and a hollowing out of Soviet era institutions and values continues all through the 90s. There are some exceptions. Again, the Baltic states are the key exceptions here. Eastern Europe is an exception because they have accession to the European Union, which compels a certain degree of institutional reform and recreation, which is a very different path out of the Soviet Union. But instead, you get the continued collapse until you have some sort of stabilization, which you get with the early Putin regime, which arrests, literally arrests the collapse and makes the state stable again, does some market reforms, which are really important. And it's not just oil prices that save the Russian state or the Putin regime. It's a tremendous amount of really important market reforms. It's very important macroeconomic stability, which is done by the uh, technocrats, the liberal side of the regime, the economists who are still there, by the way, and, and still working yep. on this fiscal military part of the state, right? The fiscal part of They're the state. They're saving the state. That's right. So it's macroeconomic stability. It's recreation of some centralized state power in Russia alongside this whirlwind, this tornado, this continued collapse. And so you get a period of stabilization. You still have a lot of the same problems, Mike. How do you assimilate the new economy? How do you assimilate all of those young kids, all that human capital that's tech oriented? Right now, we see them working for the Ukrainian state. There's 20 something year old kids all over Ukraine and some outside Ukraine who are working for the Ukrainian war effort against Russia. Right. And they're really sophisticated and they're amazing. And yes, they have Western assistance. And yes, Palantir and other private companies are involved, not just governments, but it's the Ukrainian themselves. And it's their new economy, human capital. Right. In Russia, the new where's the new economy, human capital today? It's in Yerevan. It's in Kyrgyzstan. It's it's everywhere but Russia, sadly. And it's because this dictatorial regime that Putin runs, just choked on the new economy. It just choked on the human capital who don't want to live under such a regime as Putin's regime, where the elections are fake and where there's repression and the whole story. Okay, so what does this mean? It means that the methods that Putin used 
to stop the collapse in the 90s on the political side undid the result of him stopping the Soviet collapse. And instead, we went back into the collapse continued once more, meaning unwittingly Putin trying to arrest the collapse was only partially successful and you cannot get to a better place by the kind of methods, murder, expropriation, and all the other things that we know from Putin. And so we're left with this conundrum that Russian power, the aspirations of Russian power exceed the capabilities of Russian power. That's it. That's the core axis of Russian history. It was the problem in the czarist period. It was the problem under Gorbachev. It's the problem under Putin. The West is more powerful. The West has the technology. The West has a better, stronger political system because it's legitimate. You could go on and you could go on, right? The West is stronger. The gap with the West is growing. How does Russia manage this gap? Because it aspires to be, like you said earlier, a power of the first rank. And its capabilities don't match that. And so it it uses this coercive, attempted, forced modernization. It uses overinvestment in the military, punching above its weight. It uses uh, criminal banditry, murder abroad, all the things that you know, anything asymmetrical to try to manage this gap. There's no solution to Russian power on that axis unless the West itself were to collapse. And it's not collapsing. And so Russia is left with the choice. It's either going to be a normal country and not aspire to be one of the fake, can't realize itself, poles of a multipolar world, or it's going to continue to impose these costs on its neighbors and its people in pursuit of a chimera that it can't attain, which is to say, the brief periods of parity with the West militarily, which were not periods of parity in soft power terms, in political terms, and certainly not economic terms. So either they give up the pursuit of wanting to control part of the world in some condominium, or we get this version of Russian power sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the self-defeating quagmire that we have today. I'm afraid the second part is going to play out more than the first part. So here's my view on that subject. First, I think in an irony of history, as much as he, uh, to some extent, resents and despises Gorbachev, Putin in many ways is completing the process that Gorbachev began of the fragmentation of Soviet power. And he, and he ironically has done the greatest harm to Russian influence over the same, very same geopolitical space where he has sought to restore it particularly through the strategic blunder of this war, but they're also pursuing kind of Wilhelmian policies, right, of, of being, being revanchist, of using force in international politics or portraying Russia not just as a country that's trying to be the agenda setter, but in many cases also the, the bully and the main threat to its neighbors. I very much agree with that uh, point of view. I think also... Mike, that's such a big irony, Mike. That's such a deep point you made because here they hate Gorbachev because he gave up all their toys, like you said. And and what's yeah. Putin done? He's done worse than Gorbachev. He's given up the energy superpower status that they had, right? He's he's given up. He so squandered many- the legacy. What well, at least what I'm seeing happening right now, 
is that the two things he inherited clearly from the Soviet Union that allowed him to restore a substantial degree of Russian power, he's burning through right now. And the two I would highlight, the first, and that's why I, 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 I feel relatively common now, is military. Russia inherited a Soviet legacy of huge mobilization potential, equipment, ammunition, what have you. He is burning through it right now, and they will not be able to restore this. Yes, it may take the better part of a decade for the Russian military to rebuild, but they will not be able to rebuild what they inherited from the Soviet Union because they're not the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union can't come back. It's gone. So he's burning through the mobilization potential for the military. That's important. And he still inherited Russia as a relative energy major power, as a very well-positioned power with influence in Europe. And he's launched a process that over the next decade will substantially diminish Russia's position and competitiveness as an energy power. And he doesn't have a model of economic development that's an alternative to energy revenues. But he just doesn't. <laughs> so, so he took the two things that at least Russia got from the Soviet Union, and you can argue how great they were, the military side and Energy is a major source of revenue that you could have used for modernization. Yeah, which they which they did. I mean, in fairness, they did to an extent. They to an extent they used it, and he's now squandered both of them, while ultimately fragmenting what was left of Russian influence in the Soviet geopolitical space. It's it's a it's a phenomenal legacy if you think how it comes around full circle in twenty years or what. 22 years, from my perspective. I don't yeah, know how right. you react to that. Let's, let's remember though that that. Um, he still got that macroeconomic stability piece that was also inherited. That sure. goes back to the finance ministry of the czarist era. It goes back to the fact that Imperial Russia also had a fiscal military state that was better than the Qing state in China, better than the Ottoman state, both of which went broke. Right. Um, and, and so he still got that piece. And the irony here, Mike, is the piece he's got left is the piece that they detested the most, the liberals. The economists, the technocrats, those are the yeah. people, the military people hate them. The KGB people hate them, right? The energy people hate them because they're always talking about budget constraints and they're always talking about living within our means. And they're always talking about protecting the ruble and, and, and preventing inflation and all of those things that make mobilization possible coming from the economic technocrats are the things most detested by. And so what do we see in the end that the thing he's the only thing he's got left is the thing that they all devalued the most. And the only things that he, uh, that uh, the only people that he's got left are the people who despise the West, think the West cheated Russia, think the West is out to destroy Russia. When, as you're arguing, it's Putin himself. If it weren't for the Ukrainians dying and their country being destroyed by the Russians, I would be in favor of Putin staying in power for 20 more years because he could finish Russia off as a great power. Unfortunately, it's coming at such a high price of Ukrainian lives and infrastructure. And it's also coming at a high price of, of Russian culture and the Russian people who are being devalued internationally, even when they're against the war and, and they're in emigration because of their association with this criminal murderous regime. So Russian greatness is only possible in gangster fashion right now, sadly. This once great civilization has been reduced to gangsterism. It's very sad to see that for those of us who love Russia and are, are at some level Russian patriots in a cultural sense. I mean, Steve, I think I think that could be fair, but 
as they say, this too shall pass. To me, the the kind of the long term issue, as as I think you rightly put it, is look, there there to some extent needs to be an answer to Russian power. Yes, you can hope that Russian exceptional strategic culture will change and Russian aspirations to want to be an arbiter of European security and to have a leading role in international politics will actually come much more in line with Russian means, right? But the challenge you always have with Russia is that despite its own efficiencies, it has tremendous latent power and decent amount of mobilization potential. So it has these periods where people forget about it and, and Russia comes back and becomes a major problem. And if you look at European security architecture, well, you can confidently say one thing. After World War I and World War II, people got serious about the business of what to do with German power in Europe, okay, and how to manage uh, Germany. But after the Cold War, we have not come up with the best answer. Let's say very incomplete answer because somebody immediately will show up. Well, we expanded NATO and I say that's a solution to filling the vacuum left in European security by Soviet departure. However, these, to me, are principally wars of Soviet succession. This is still the process of the dissolution of the Soviet Union unfolding. Russia remains a revanchist state, and there haven't been great solutions come up with what to do with Russian power because it may not be strong enough to meet with the aspirations of Russian strategic culture, but it's strong enough to bring us to the largest conventional war in Europe post-World War II. And this is kind of a pretty big problem. I think it's safe to point to it. And guess what? This is a continuation war of the 2014 war. And how this war ends may lead to yet another war in a series of such conflicts, right? That's the way history often plays out. So there's an ongoing questions of what do we do with the process of Soviet dissolution? You know, as the, I mean, Sergei Plokhi and others have highlighted this too, because fundamentally the, the Soviet, Soviet Union is dead, but it's not gone. Like it's still with us as a fragmenting uh, entity. Uh, what do we do with Russian power? How do we manage it? And there, there's a range of answers out there on the board. But to me, the most important one is obviously not writing Russia off and wanting to, you know, how people will often historically look at and say, hey, I have some good intellectual alibis. Guess what? In the 1980s, you know, uh, we won the Cold War and then the Soviet Union dissolved itself. So if we apply enough pressure, this will happen. Right. And the answer is uh, actually no, it wasn't overdetermined, and the Soviet Union didn't dissolve itself because of how much pressure we applied, and that's not necessarily going to happen here moving forward. You have to have a better answer than just assuming that you can tie machine back into the 1980s and recreate those processes. We're not the United States of the 1980s, and Russia ain't the Soviet Union. Yeah, Mike, you're right. Now, the answer to Russian power in the world is going to come from the Russians, uh, predominantly. For sure. That's where it's going to come, if it comes. Uh, nobody in Europe is going to be able to pick Russia up and put it on the other side of China. Russia is going to be where it is, uh, but and, and therefore those states that are within proximity of Russia, whether that is uh, Ukraine, Poland, Sweden, and Finland now who've asked to join NATO, or even Germany, which is farther away from Russia, than it was obviously in the Soviet times, but it's still not far away. They surely have to come up with an answer of managing Russian power as neighbors of Russia. But the nature of Russian power will be determined inside Russia. My fear here is uh, not that we are naive about how we won the Cold War and we're going to do this to Russia again. In other words, all we got to do is, as you said, apply pressure and bang, the thing dissolves. It didn't dissolve because 
we applied pressure. We It began to reform itself because we applied pressure. And it turned mm-hmm. out that the reform process and the structure of the ethno-territorial state dissolved the thing. The pressure was important from the outside. The sense that they had lost the geopolitical competition and needed to do something was important. But the processes were internal. They were unintentional and they were internal. But without a transformed Russian power, domestically determined, where Russia is not a gangster state chimerically pursuing a status that it cannot, ha- does not have and cannot have, but instead is another country, a regular country, a normal country, a country that used to have an empire like France or the UK or to a lesser extent the Netherlands and Portugal and doesn't have one anymore whether that's an overseas or a contiguous empire, but as a normal country instead, right? That problem uh, won't go away, whatever the outcome in the current criminal aggression against Ukraine. But I'd just like to widen this. uh, One final thought, maybe Mm -hmm. widen this, Mike. This is not just Russia. This is Iran, and this is China also. This is Eurasia writ large. There's a model of power the Anglo-American model of power, which is a superior form of power. It's limited government, that is, limits on executive power through separation of power and transparency and election and accountability. It's limited government. It's free and open market economy for the most part. It's trade with other rich countries, trading with other technologically advanced countries and its navies to keep the whole world open, right? It's naval power. It's a, it's a fiscal naval state more than it's a fiscal military state. Sure, we have an army. Sure, we have an air force. Sure, the army has tremendous uh, mobility capabilities, etc. But it's really fundamentally about the oceans, about trade with other rich countries, about a dynamic market economy, and about a limited political system. That form of power is better. It's stronger. You can like it. You can not like it. You can rail against it. You can say, how did they get in charge? We're civilizations of Eurasia. We predate the West. We predate American power by millennia. We're ancient. We're better. We're cultures that, that, that are not superficial like these Americans or these Westerners, but they have a form of power which is autocratic, which is land-based, which actually don't have navies in the same way and don't trade with other rich countries. They're commodity exporters to a certain extent. Yes, China's a bit of an exception here, Mike, but let's remember they built their navy after they became a trading nation because they had our navy to protect their trading nation status. Let's remember that they have one coast, not two coasts. There's no California in China. It opens up into desert. It opens up into inner Asia. It opens up into uh, ethnic tensions and re-education camps. And let's also remember that the one coast that they do have is hemmed in. It's hemmed in by the first island chain and American. So China is to a certain extent trying to emulate that Anglo-American model of power, but it is still fundamentally Eurasian power like Russia and like Iran. We've never had an answer 
to Iranian, Russian, and Chinese power, except occasionally playing one off against the other, right? Uh, but 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 that was less successful than meets the eye, and that's a conversation for a different podcast. So so yeah. we can only we can't transform; we can only manage. We can manage this through investment in ourselves, keeping our military ahead. Uh, in 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 the key areas, making sure our technology, infrastructure, and human capital are continually getting better and better, making sure we have strong alliances that require renewal, making sure that the West, which is not a geographic concept, but which is an institutional concept, it's about rule of law, and it's about Western-style institutions, right? Russia is European culturally, but not Western institutionally, while Japan is not That's European right. culturally, but Western institutionally. So the West is not geographic. It includes all of our friends in Asia as well. So we have a model of power that's successful to manage this challenge, but not a model to transform it, to make it like ourselves. That's something only that the people inside these countries can do. Right. And uh, this is a very important point because the only thing I'll add to is that there's, there is always this assumption in some circles that, look, if only Russia was a liberal democracy, if it could transform this way, then all these things would be solved. And my answer to that is it, it would be nice. It would be a good problem to have, right, to have that Russia. Uh, but don't be don't assume that Russia, if it was a democracy, would be your best friend. You're over-interpreting from a narrow lens of history between Yeltsin and Clinton, actually. There's a good chance that even a democratic Russia – I'm sorry – wouldn't necessarily be America's best friend, wouldn't agree with a lot of America's preferences and predilections. And yes, it might not invade uh, neighbors in the same way. Although, to be honest, post-World War II history shows that democratic uh, imperial powers like Britain and France continued their imperialistic pursuits until they ran out of Schlitz, military power. Not because they suddenly woke up and said, hey, I didn't realize I was so liberal and democratic. You know, I should stop fighting for Indochina and for all my colonies. Mike, so that's not necessarily right. the case either. Boris Yeltsin asked for the return of Crimea. From the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians just laughed at him. And Boris Yeltsin didn't have the military power during that Soviet collapse transition to post-Soviet mm -hmm. Russia where the collapse continued. But Yeltsin publicly demanded the return of Crimea because not just Yeltsin alone, not just Putin, but many people inside Russia felt that it was legitimately Russian territory. They didn't remember that it was a Tatar Khanate. They didn't remember that sure. uh, Turkic-speaking Tatars were deported by Stalin en masse from Crimea, uh, changing the ethnic composition, making it much more Russian, as you know from history. But nonetheless, you're right. There are state interests which transcend the nature of political systems, and those state interests can clash. But there's a difference in managing clashing state interests when your political system is not a gangster regime versus your political system is a gangster regime. What the Russians determined, and it was not the Russians collectively, but it was the Russian elites that were close to power inside the Yeltsin regime. What they determined was that Russian power to survive could, could not be Western. It had to be anti-Western because it would just become a plaything of the West and relinquish forever its great power status. So that's why, Mike, I think that's the axis here. Coming to grips 
with not being able to be a power on the same level as the United States. If that realization were to be institutionalized, Russian state interests would not be the same as they are now and as we're seeing unfold in Ukraine and elsewhere. And so it's not a discussion about the end of Russian state interests or about the end of differences, important and significant differences in the way the Russians conceive of the world and their state interests. And we might do so here, sitting as you are in Washington, right, or as I am in academia. But it is an easier management issue, but it doesn't, the management of difference doesn't go away. It never goes away. Right now, however, the management problem is exacerbated, right, by this clash between different models, the Anglo-American model of power, which folded in Western Germany and now Eastern Germany, as well as the first island chain, right? It folded in the two flanking powers, Germany and Japan, into the Western American-led system. Those two flanking powers are Russia's two flanking powers that they've never had a full answer to. Once Bismarck unified Germany and once Meiji Japan was... uh, now, didn't unify the country, but nonetheless transformed it into a more centralized state. Once those things happened to Ru- Imperial Russia, Tsarist Russia, the game changed for Russia. Those were the, the enemies of the United States in World War II. And now they are the friends of the United States and they're critical pillars of the international system that we benefit so much from. And so that Western-led system, right, which folded in the flanking powers, which has this different model, is in a clash with Eurasia, not because of evil people or mismanagement, but because there's just this fundamental difference in modes of power, types of regimes, and the possibilities of these regimes. So we we had the Iranian thing, we had the Shah for a while who was an ally, and we know how that worked. The Russian thing, we had Yeltsin briefly, and we know how that worked. China, we had the illusions that Deng Xiaoping was coming our way rather than strengthening the the Chinese communist regime as he did so that there's continuity between Xi and Deng much more than we uh, retrospectively we understood, but prospectively much more than we understood. So, yeah, Mike, I'm with you on Russia's not going away, but I still think that if Russians were to transform the nature of their power mm-hmm. in the world and their aspirations in line with their capabilities domestically, that the management issue would become more normal rather than what it is now. No, it's very fair. I mean, to me, one of the biggest issues, and this doesn't require a transformation of necessarily of the nature of the state, but fundamentally of behavior, strategic culture, and if I was to take a wildly optimistic Pollyannish view of what can happen from this war, is that it may teach this imperial imperialistic elite how to become more post-imperial if they suffer a major defeat, like other revanchist uh, imperialist states had in the past. So, look, every Russian leader, no matter what stripe, and I'm painting with a broad brush now, I'm being a bit essentialist, but most Russian leaders have had a conception of a geopolitical space that they wanted influence over outside of Russian borders, okay? And the question is, you know, one, to what extent can that change? But the more important question is how Russia goes about achieving influence in that space, right? Because there is, there, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with Russia 
caring about what happens in Georgia, let's say, or any or Kazakhstan or any neighboring state. Of course, they would care what's happening on their border or another country. But what matters how they go about achieving influence, you know, using force international politics or not, um, the, the, the methods and means matter significantly and also in the outlook, right? It, I think it will obviously be a long time for Russian elites to get over the chauvinistic outlook on, th- on, on countries that they fundamentally see as former territories or colonies. I get that. But this, the way they define geopolitical space in general is something that will have to transform, independent of what kind of regime Russia has. And part of it has to do to, I think, has to happen through historical learning. Like, you know, and you can always hope for a transformative leader, and Russia clearly didn't get one. You know, another argument historically is that Russia was unlucky with leaders. Yeltsin's hell failed, okay? And Putin followed Yeltsin, and that's basically been the story. Right? <laughs> it's basically been, I'm, I'm overly, I'm overly uh, summarizing it, but uh, that the Russia, the, there, there's not been um, like a Kamal Ataturk or somebody like that that's that's come along in Russia and has had power long enough to make some of these bigger changes to see them through. But I, I don't, we've been talking for quite a bit. I have pulled you away over the course of the holidays, and uh, this episode is meant to be a Christmas special, so to speak, or let's say a holiday special is what what it really is. And uh, as we're we're discussing it around the same time, thirty one years ago, the Soviet Union. Uh, dissolved, but uh, I'll turn it over to you, Steve, for any final words if you have them. And and if not, it was, it was wonderful to have you on your show, and I really appreciate that you, the you accepted my invite. Thank you, Mike. Great podcast that, that you're running. It was an honor and a pleasure to be on it as a guest. Keep up the great work of your analysis that you're putting into the public realm about the war, and not just Merry Christmas, but Happy Hanukkah to the whole crew at, at War on the Rocks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Much appreciate it.